it's uh, always an honor to, to be able to speak at a church and be entrusted uh, to fill a pulpit. And uh, what an awesome opportunity to follow up my father this morning and be able to, to share a Sunday with him. There, there's been one other time when he was pastoring in Flatwoods, Kentucky. We came out and visited for a weekend, and he spoke Sunday morning, and I got to speak Sunday night. So this is only the second time ever. So, Pastor Josh, you mentioned we have a lot of former pastors, a lot of preachers that go to church here. And, uh, man, this week, since you, you caught me and asked me to speak this Sunday night, and, and probably I'm sure some of you that, that have been preachers, uh, can relate to this, but I've just had this wrestling match with God about what to speak on. And, and immediately, like that night, I got home and God began to, to direct me towards a scripture, and I read it, and I was thinking about it and praying about it, and I was like, God, I don't want to preach that one. I don't want to do that one. So I, I'd start writing another one, and God would bring me back to that same scripture, and, and I'd kind of work on it a little bit, and be like, I really don't think I'm ready to do that one yet. And so I have about four sermons that were about halfway written before I finally like said, okay, God, I'll preach what you want me to preach, I guess. <laughs> and the scripture that he kept bringing me to is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. It says, listen. It's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. I want to pray real quick and then we'll dive into this. God, come and dwell among us tonight. Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you will speak tonight. That my words would be your words. God, that I would not say anything that you do not plan for me to say. God, that your word would go out and plant seeds. Seeds that return a harvest of 30 60 and a hundredfold, God. Let your word be spoken tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So you may not know this about me, but I'm, I'm a little bit of a history nerd. Um, I love history, and I love, I love digging into it. Um, I'm, a, I'm a reader. I love to read. I've almost always got on my phone a, uh, a book of some sort that I've downloaded. I just finished... Uh, <laughs> biography of Daniel Boone. Everybody's like, woohoo, that's really exciting. I loved it. Good stuff. So uh, it, it's usually some sort of on my phone, some sort of biography, some sort of historical uh, context, something like that. And I had read a couple months ago, I had just finished up reading a biography on Alexander the Great. You guys, I'm sure, are all familiar with who that was. He was a, a Macedonian king, and he's always just... Uh, I've always just really been drawn to him. I mean, the guy was like 25 years old when he became king, and he, and he went off like immediately after becoming king and just started conquering 
lands and, and just was this amazing general that went through, went all the way to India and conquered lands there. And it was this, this crazy story and died at, I believe, like the age of 35, something like that, after having conquered all these lands. And there was basically no more lands left for him to conquer. And he dies. And, and in this book, as it talks about after his death, he died while he was in Babylon and was going to be buried in the city of Alexandria in Egypt that he had founded when he had conquered Egypt. And so they're making preparations to, to transport his body from Babylon down to Egypt. And this, this book, as it goes on, it talks about this huge cart and, and the coffin and how it was covered in gold. And, and it was just this huge thing that, that was pulled by 64 mules had to pull this thing. That's how big it was. And as it gets done describing it, it says this. Before the procession set out from Babylon, an army of pioneers and workmen went forward to repair the roads, strengthen the bridges, and remove the obstacles along the whole line of the route over which the train was to pass. And as I, I read that, I was like, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> and I began to look into... In, in the, the last part of the B.C. before Christ, and even before that into the eastern kings from Persia and Assyria, and there's this historical context of when a king was to travel, and he was getting ready to travel from one city to another city in his territory, he would send out what was called a forerunner. And this person would go, and he would travel along the road that the king was going to come, and he would, he would mark out the places along the road that need to be fixed. He would mark out the valleys that needed to be filled in. He would mark out the hills and the mountains that needed to be leveled off. He would mark off the curves that were too curvy that needed to be straightened. And he would make the road as smooth as possible for the king to come and enter into that land. It was a very common practice, and so this, this man, this forerunner, would go and he would identify these places, and he would identify these, these spots that needed to be worked on, and then his job then was to, was to arrange the workers to get the army to come along and fill in those valleys and to topple the mountains and to straighten the curves and to make the road as smooth as possible. So when Isaiah is giving this prophecy to Israel, it had a very real and historical context to the people who would have been hearing it. It would have been something they would have known. And so this verse, I'm sure most of you know, was the verse when John the Baptist was asked, Who are you? These are the verses that John the Baptist quoted. He said, I'm the voice of one crying out, Make a pathway for our king. Level the mountains. Fill in the valleys. If you read through the book of Isaiah, there are so many prophecies about the Messiah coming. There's so many that talk about what, what his earthly ministry is going to be like. But there's also many that have yet to come to pass because they are prophecies concerning when Christ returns to earth and sets up his kingdom here on earth. Christ, when he came before, set up the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. But how many know when Christ returns, he's going to set up a physical kingdom? A kingdom that will reign for a thousand years, as, as Dave talked about last week. A kingdom here on earth. And so I believe this scripture, yes, it was 
definitely referencing John the Baptist, but I believe this prophecy is a prophecy that needs to come true today, now, in the church. That it's time we have people stand up and say, in the church, we need to fill in some valleys. In the church, we need to level off some mountains. We need to straighten some roads. We need to make the path straight. Why? Because our king is coming. It's time to prepare the way for our king. You see, when, when the forerunners, when the men who had come, when John the Baptist spoke, they weren't speaking and going to the enemies of the king. He wasn't going into enemy territory. He was going to the subjects of the king. John the Baptist, when he spoke, he was not speaking to the Gentiles. He was not speaking to, to the sinners. He was speaking to the Jewish people, God's people. And his message was, repent. Repent. When I look at the state of the American church, and I look at, at how far we've come when I read in the book of Acts what the church looked like and what the church did and how the church operated. And I look at the American church, it's mind-boggling. How did we get here in some of the cases? It's time that we take a good, hard look at ourselves. Over 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther. I'm sure you all know the story. Martin Luther, five, over 500 years ago, when, when every Christian was a Catholic, began to see that in the Catholic Church there were certain practices, there were certain things happening that needed to be changed to align with Scripture. And so as he began to go through these, and he began to be, I believe, led by the Spirit of God to see these things, he began to write them down and came up with 95 of them that he said these things need to be changed. And he posted them on the, on the walls of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, and it kicked off what became known as the Protestant Reformation. Every single one of us here, every Christian that does not call the Catholic Church their church is a product of that Reformation. For 500 years, the Protestant church has grown, has changed, has adopted ways. But I believe that, that in order to be who God needs us to be, in order to do what God needs us to do, it's time that we begin to look at ourselves in the same way that Martin Luther looked at the Catholic church. It's time to align ourselves with Scripture. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. I want to read these to you real quick. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Paul here is speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he's describing what a godly relationship looks like between a husband and a wife. And he says this, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. I believe that is the church that Jesus is coming back for. As his bride, a church without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. 
How many knows we have a ways to go to get there? <laughs> can we just be real and be honest with ourselves and, and take an open and honest look at who we are and where we are in our walk? Not only as a, as a church as a whole, but as individuals. The, the Bible says, Paul says that we are all one body. One body. We all are different parts. We all have different purposes. We all have different different reasons that we are here, but we are all one body. And as a body as a whole, our job is to measure up to the head of the body, which is Christ. Too many times in the past and in church history, man, the church has walked around like a headless body (laughs) because we have not measured up to the full stature and the head of the church, which is Christ. It's time that we decide how do we do that? How do we get there? How do we prepare the way so that when our king returns, it's as smooth and as possible? It's time for the church to prepare the way for the return of our king. So how do you do that? Isaiah says this, that they would go and they would fill in the valleys. I believe that for us, one of the things that means is that we need to deal with our hurt and our unforgiveness as Christians. That we have allowed things and situations and people that have hurt us in the past to cause these valleys to appear in our lives. And unforgiveness has, has, has kept those valleys from being filled in. We have Christians who are walking around carrying hurt and unforgiveness for things that have happened to them years and years ago. And they're not able to let go of it. Let me tell you this. Hurt and unforgiveness, undealt with hurt and unforgiveness in your life sabotages the progress of God in your life. We're hurting and we're walking around with this pain and all God is saying is, is give it to me. You know, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he, and he preaches his first great sermon found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you guys all know it, one of the first things he says is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's always a tough one to preach on. I remember I was an associate pastor at a church for a while and we were doing a, a sermon series, our pastor was, on on the Beatitudes, and he came and caught me, he was like, hey, I want you to preach on this Sunday, and I started looking it up to figure out which one it was, and of course, I got blessed are those who mourn. Thanks. Good pick-me-up sermon right there. Though it's not the most fun to preach, it's necessary. It's necessary to mourn, because to mourn, that means you have to acknowledge that you are hurting. You have to acknowledge that there's pain there that has to be dealt with. And only through that acknowledgement and that mourning process can you be healed and can you be made whole. The same is true for unforgiveness. So many times those two walk hand in hand. We're still hurting and we're still holding on to that hurt because we have yet to forgive the person who hurt us. Later on, as Jesus is preaching, he says, when you pray, pray like this. And he, and he begins what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, my dad's the Greek scholar, but I have looked it up. 
And you know what the Greek word for debts there is? It's debts. That's what it means. And I, as I studied that out a couple years ago, I began to really be like, man, that's such a weird thing. Like you see in so many translations, they'll say, forgive us our trespasses or, or forgive us our transgressions or our sins as we forgive those who sin or trespass or transgress against us. But the word is debt and debtor, debtors. And it's a whole other sermon that I could spend an entire night just on that one phrase. But let me tell you something. When somebody sins against you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody lies to you, when somebody abuses you, be it physically or mentally or in any way sins against you, they take something from you. When they lie to you, they take the truth from you. When they, when they abuse you physically, they take your sense of safety. When they abuse you mentally or emotionally, they take your sense of self-worth from you. They've taken something from you, and they now owe you a debt because they have stolen from you. But the problem is, the majority of the time, those people, one, are never going to come back and offer that back to you. They're never going to come back and say, I'm sorry. That's just life. That's just humanity, unfortunately. That's just how life goes. They're never going to come back and offer that to you. And so we walk around with that piece of ourselves missing, with that debt that's out there that we're holding on to, that we're just hoping and praying maybe that somehow that debt is going to be repaid to us, and we're holding on to that, and it hurts us. But what the Bible says is forgive those who have taken from you. Forgive them. And, and when you do that, an amazing thing happens. That debt that that person may not even realize that they took from you, God replaces that in your life and you become whole again. Unforgiveness, the Bible says later on in that chapter, Jesus says, if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. And stop and think about that for a minute. Search. Search your heart. God, is there anyone out there that I have not forgiven? Is there anyone out there that I'm holding a grudge, that I'm trying to hold them to this debt that they took from me? You know why I believe that is? Is because unforgiveness is not one of those sins that's just, whoops, messed up, God. Unforgiveness is something you choose every day. Unforgiveness is something you choose to walk in and live in every single day. And so just by the fact that you have unforgiveness in your life, you have unforgiveness in your heart, means that you are not confessing, that you're not repenting of that sin. We need to make sure that unforgiveness and unresolved hurt is not sabotaging God's progress in our lives. And I picture, like, have you ever been around somebody that has been hurt and just is emotionally unstable? It's like walking around through, like, a minefield sometimes, right? Like, you, you don't even realize it. You're just walking along and you step in the wrong place and boom, the whole thing just blows up. You're like, I don't even know what happened. I don't know what's going on. 
that's how we are emotionally when we have unforgiveness. And that's what we're doing to God's work and God's progress in our lives when we harbor unforgiveness is we're blowing it up every time somebody steps on it. And we're messing it up and we're keeping ourselves from being able to prepare the way of the Lord. The next thing Isaiah says is level the mountains. Level the mountains. James 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins one to another. Mountains are strongholds. Mountains are places where you can, you can build a stronghold and hold it for a long time. Remember, this is to the church. This is to the Jews. This is to God's holy people. But I believe we need to level the mountains and the strongholds of sin in our lives. Jesus says on numerous occasions, not everyone who calls me Lord or Master will enter into my kingdom. You know what that means? Is there are literally hundreds and thousands of people who sit in church pews and in chairs every single Sunday who have sin in their lives who are not going to make it. We need to tear down these strongholds of sin. We need to be able to confess them, not only to God, but to one another. Why do we have to confess to each other? Why is that important? Why is it not just okay for me to just come and say my prayer and say, God, forgive me, I've sinned. You know what I did. I believe part of the reason is that we need that openness. We need to communicate and build up our fellow Christians. And, and by confessing your sin, by confessing your weakness to other people, what you are doing is you are opening up a two-way communication for that person then to be able to say, you know what, I struggle with that too. See, one of the biggest problems I think that we have in America is we have so many pastors who get up on stage and they, they, they look perfect every every garment, every shoelace, every little button just looks great. Their hair's perfect. And they, they preach what looks like a perfect sermon. And they, you look at them and they have their perfect wife and their perfect kids. And everything just looks so amazing up on stage. And they never take time to say, you know what, I'm human. You know what, I sin. I mess up. I struggle with this and I struggle with that and then what happens is every Sunday when all you see is perfection up here you feel like this is the standard that you have to live to and so it means that you're not comfortable confessing your sins you're not comfortable going and saying I'm struggling because you never hear it from your leader we need to be able to confess our sins to tear down those strongholds that sin has built in our lives so let's be real and honest with each other. Let's not be afraid to say, I'm struggling. I need your help. I need you to pray with me. Can I just be real and honest with you? I have struggled with pornography and lust since I was about 12 years old. In the majority of my teenage years, I thought, man, what a terrible person I am. This is awful. I've got three older brothers. 
And I've got many friends who are Christians. And I thought, I must be the only one in the world who struggles with this sin. And I let Satan just beat me up time and time and time again. Every time I failed, every time I I messed up, I just let the devil just hold it over me and just dug myself into this trench of just feeling like Paul says I am the chiefs of sinners. And I was like, you got nothing on me, Paul. (laughs) And that guilt... And that shame. Let me tell you something. There's a difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt brings on shame. And its goal is to keep you right where you are. Conviction brings on confession with a goal of moving you towards God. We need more conviction and confession in our lives. When I finally heard someone get up from the pulpit and say, I struggle with this, I was like, what? No way! And as I came to find out, as I grew older and it began to open up conversations, all of my brothers had struggled with it. So many of my friends had struggled with it. And it became this thing no longer of this is shameful and I can't believe I did that and I'm the only one that has ever struggled with this thing in my entire life. To this thing of I could go to my brother and say, man, I really struggled this week. I really need some help. I could call up a friend and say, man, I, I, I messed up. I just need some help to get through this. We need more of that. And guess what? It starts right here. It starts in the pulpit. It starts with our leaders. Leaders, pastors, preachers, youth pastors. Be open. Be open from the pulpit and talk about your struggles. Fathers, be open with your sons and talk about your struggles. Mothers, talk about your struggles with your daughters. We need to get over this idea that I've got to just carry this burden for the rest of my life. Because not only are you carrying it, what you're doing is you're cursing your sons and your daughters to carry it alone as well. Unconfessed sin blockades the progress of God in our lives. It builds walls. It builds fortresses. It keeps us from experience, experiencing, man, the love of God in our lives the way that we should. Straighten the curves. We need to align ourselves with the Word of God. Psalms 1, verses 1 to 4. I know we started reading in Psalms as we began our prayer and our our Bible reading this year. Psalms 1, verses 1 to 4 says this, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with the mockers, but they delight in in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked, they are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. Paul paints a picture in Ephesians chapter 4 also of, of... Those who are not mature in the faith, mature in the Word of God, is being blown around by every argument that comes. You know, somebody comes and they present a case, they're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And then somebody says something over there, they're like, yeah, that's good too, oh, that's good. And we're just back and forth and there's no solidness, there's no foundation for who we are as Christians because we don't know the Word. 
As Christians, we need to know what the Word of God says. We need to stop relying on our pastor to tell us, and we need to get into it for ourselves. Because you know what? As my dad preached this morning, our job as Christians, every single one of you, is to go out and spread the good news. And some of us can't do that because we don't know the good news ourselves. It's time that we align ourselves and straighten our path so that we're not blown to this side or that side by, by people who come and talk. We have people who are leaders in, in Christianity that people look up to and they're asked questions and they're like, mm, I don't really know how I feel about that. You know why they don't know how they feel about that? Because they don't know what the Word says about it. And we're in a time of... of postmodernism where the, where the prevailing thought is whatever you feel that's right that's truth you discover your truth as christians i'm here to tell you there is one truth and it is the word of god so if you don't know what the word of god says you have no foundation you have nothing to align your path with and you're just going from side to side, anything that catches your fancy, anything that draws your attention, you're just drawn to and you're back and forth. And Jesus says, no, there's a straight path, a narrow path. That is the path you are called to. We need to straighten the roads of, of the church and in our lives to prepare the way for our King to come. We need to align ourselves by the Word of God. Ignorance of the Word slows the progress of God in our lives. We need to know what the Bible says. We need to be in it daily. We have too many starved Christians walking around because the only time they're spiritually fed is once a week on Sunday morning. It's the only time, and even then they don't even really open their Bible, they just look at it up there and assume that that's right. And I think there's churches you could probably walk into and you could put anything you wanted up there and they would have no idea. They just assume because it's on the screen that's got to be correct, right? It's like Facebook. It's on Facebook. It's got to be real. Because we're ignorant in the church. The American church is ignorant of the Word of God. And because of that, we're being blown around by every prevailing wind. We're being blown this way and that way because we have nothing to align our paths with. And it's slowing the progress of God in our lives and in our country and in our churches. Smooth out the rough places. I was thinking about this phrase and what it meant and how that looks for us as Christians. What does it mean to smooth out the rough places? I was drawn to 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. I love these scriptures because it talks about the Holy Spirit and it talks about the gifts of the Spirit 
and it talks about how those are to be used in our lives on a daily basis. And, and chapters 12 and 14 talk specifically about the gifts of, of speaking in tongues and the gifts of prophecy and all of these different things. But right smack dab in the middle of it is the love chapter, right? Right smack dab in the middle of it. Paul gets into talking about you know, all of the, the gifts of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our lives and what it looks like. And right in the middle of it, he says, but wait, I want to show you an even better way. It's love. And he gets done listing all of the offices and he says, all of these things that they're great, should we, we, should, we should desire all of these things, but he says this, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. What did Jesus say that we as his followers should be known by? Our love. Go and ask the average person on the street what they know of Christians. How far down that list do you think love is going to be? You know what I hear? Judgment. What are Christians known for? Their judgment. What are Christians known for? <laughs> Pastors messing up. That's in the news a lot. Christians are known for a lot of things, but you know what's not in the news a lot? Is love. Some of that is media, but some of that is because we've lost it. Because we're not out there as we go showing love to our neighbors. I talked about it last time I spoke some of us, we can't show love to our neighbors because we don't know our neighbors. It's time as Christians that everything we do be motivated by love and inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You do those two things. You let love shine in your life and you let the Holy Spirit guide and direct you in everything you do. That is going to make a difference and that is going to prepare the way for the Lord to come and return. Man, it's Pentecostals too. Like we feel like we have a corner on the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> like we've got that under control. You can go back and study in the, in the early 1900s, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit again and how it happened right here in this area. And it's an amazing story. But, again, as, as somewhat of a history nerd, man, you can go back and look at the great revivals of the Methodists, of the Wesley brothers. And when you read some of the stories and some of the testimonies of how those services moved and what happened in those services, man, that looks an awful lot like a Pentecostal altar service. You can go back even further than that and, and, and read about the Quakers. And their name is the Quakers because they shook when the power of God. And I've seen that so many times at an altar service. The, the Holy Spirit didn't just show up 
in the 1900s after being gone for 1,500 years. The Holy Spirit has been here and working in the church since the beginning. And you go back and you read a biography of, of the great Catholic saint, St. Thomas Aquinas, and you read about how he talked about how the Holy Spirit would come in and move during the times when he was praying and you see the gifts of the Spirit being poured out in his life. You know what we have a corner on really as Pentecostals is we have a corner on speaking in tongues. That's not all the Holy Spirit is. There's a whole list of gifts and abilities and, and, and people that the Holy Spirit empowers in the church. Why? To edify the church, to prepare us for the second coming of God. It's time that we forget about all of the, the emotionalism that we've experienced. Man, I can tell you growing up in Pentecostal camps, like, like my dad said, every summer there was a lot of emotionalism. There were times I remember at a, at a different camp, and I won't name any names, but I was like eight, nine years old, and we had, it was the Thursday night service. How many of you have grown up in camp? So Mondays, everybody's just kind of getting to know each other. Tuesdays, the, the spirit starts to move. Wednesdays, everybody gets saved. Thursday is the Holy Ghost night, right? So everybody comes to the front to get filled and, and, and speak in tongues. And I remember at eight years old having that Thursday night service and going up to the front, and it was a couple that was doing the junior camp. And I came and stood, I don't know, probably about right here. And, and the wife started on this side and the husband started on that side. And they began coming in, working their way in, praying for, for kids to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And as I'm standing here kind of praying, I'm listening, I hear the wife start working her way. And she gets about three or four kids down the way from me. And she's telling this kid that she's praying for, repeat after me. And she's saying, you know, sha-la-la-la, whatever. And the kid says, sha-la-la-la. She goes, yes, that's it, that's the Holy Ghost. Keep saying that, keep saying that. And I remember standing there at eight years old thinking, okay, I, I don't know what all this Holy Spirit stuff is, but I'm pretty sure that's not it. And I turned around and went and sat down. I've experienced and seen things that I'm like, okay, really? Like... <laughs> You're going to get up there and bark and say that's the Holy Spirit? Like, come on, how does that glorify God? Do you know what the Holy Spirit's role in our life is? What Jesus says the Holy Spirit does in our lives as Christians is that he points us towards all truth concerning God and Jesus. So let me tell you something. If what you're doing is not bringing glory and pointing people towards God and it's drawing more attention to yourself, that's probably not the Holy Spirit. Can we just get real about it? There's a lot of people who get so excited, and it's great to be excited. It's fine to get excited. That, that, that's good stuff. But when what you're doing is drawing more attention to yourself, if you're up here doing the chicken dance, come on. Are you pointing people to God, or are you drawing attention to yourself? Are you bringing glory to God, or are you just feeding into emotionalism? It's time that as Pentecostals, we learn what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, what Jesus says the role of the Holy Spirit is in our lives, and we run and try to fulfill that and try to invite him into our lives. Because the Holy Spirit isn't just an it, right? 
Like we need to learn who the Holy Spirit is. We have all these churches all over that, that if you're not a Pentecostal church, man, a lot of times they don't even want to touch the Holy Spirit because they're afraid of what it might open. But as Pentecostals, we're almost just as bad because I don't know how many times I've been told, whatever you feel, that's the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. How many times have we been in services that are that just get wild? And, and <laughs> how many have ever been in a service and they start singing the song, "Send it on down, send it on down"? I can't sing very well. Lord, send the Holy Ghost right on down. Everybody gets up, and I just think, I don't think the Holy Spirit is an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a member of the Godhead. And when we start singing songs like that, I think, man, I don't think that's showing the, the true respect and honor that the Holy Spirit deserves in our lives. It's not just whatever you feel. The Holy Spirit has a role and a purpose and an identity in our lives. It's time we understand that and get a grasp on that. In, in our Pentecostal traditions. It's time we show the respect and honor that this member of the Godhead is due in our services and in our lives. It's time that we seek after the giver and not just the gifts. It's Sunday night, man. Sunday night was the service growing up. It was the service where, where if it was going to get wild and Holy Spirit, it was going to be a Sunday night service. I remember going to Sunday night services and, and, and people would get so excited and then, you know, if we had the service and, and somebody didn't get slain or there wasn't at least two messages in tongues and interpretations or there wasn't this gift in operation or that gift in operation, people would walk away and be like, man, it wasn't all that great. You know, it was, it was all right, I guess, but I didn't get slain in the spirit tonight. Why? Because they were more worried about the gifts of the Spirit than the giver of those gifts. It's time we start stop seeking the gifts and start seeking the giver of those gifts in our lives. It's time that we invite the Holy Spirit to come in and really, truly change who we are, change our talk, change our attitude, change our actions, and purify us of all of the sin and all of the junk in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit's role is in your life, to make you into a vessel that points people to Jesus Christ. And if you can get up off the floor after being slain in the Spirit and go right back to who you were on Monday morning, then that's not really the Holy Spirit. That's emotionalism. The Holy Spirit brings about change, and it's time we understand that. Because without the Holy Spirit, and without love guiding us as we make, we make the progress in, of God in our lives even more difficult. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to come in, if you allow love to guide you in all of your actions, man, it smooths out that road for God. It makes it so much easier for God to walk in and say, I'm here. It prepares the way of the Lord. It's time as Christians that we begin to take stock. It's time as pastors and leaders and teachers and prophets and evangelists 
shepherds. And we begin to look around and decide what are the valleys that we need to fill in in our church. What are the mountains that need to be torn down in our church? What are the curves that we have laid that need to be straightened out? How do we need to smooth the road so that our king can show up? Because what happens when you do these things? When you fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. That scripture, can you guys put it up there for me real quick? Verse 5. I want you guys to see something. Whenever you see in scripture, Lord spelled like that with all caps or the the large L and the smaller O-R-D, do you guys know what that means? In scripture, what is really there is the name of God the name that, that God gave to Moses when he met with Moses in Exodus uh, at the burning bush. And he said, my name is Yahweh. So it's not just the glory of, of God the creator. It's not just the glory of, of the, the master, the ruler of the universe. It's the glory of a personal, connected, desiring to have a relationship with you, God. It's the difference of, of the Israelites calling, you know, when they're calling him Lord, when they were calling him God, to going to calling him Yahweh. It's the difference of, of, I don't know, you and your boss going from calling him Mr. So-and-so to calling him by his first name. It's God's invitation to us, everywhere you see that, to have a personal one-on-one relationship with him. That's the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh that is going to be revealed. It's not just the magnificent, the creator, the El Shaddai, the the almighty one. It's the glory of Yahweh inviting us in and saying, I want to have relationship with you. But you know what? It makes it so much harder if we allow these things to be in our lives. We allow unforgiveness and hurt to fester. We allow sin to to go unconfessed. If we don't align our lives with what the Bible says, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us and love to shine through in all we do, we are, we are making the progress of God that much more difficult in our lives. I want the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh to be revealed in my life. Every day, everywhere I go, I want to prepare the way of God so that it makes it easier and not more difficult for him to come and set up his kingdom. I love my life. I love my family. It's all great. But it all pales in comparison with the thought that one day I will be able to stand and have a face-to-face conversation with my Creator and with my Savior. Hasten the day of the Lord. God, come quickly. Help us to prepare our lives and our church and our area for your coming every day 